0: We know that our city government is doing what they can, but not enough. And that's why we see people being displaced. That's why there are more people falling into homelessness every week, every year. What else could our city be like if we were to do something completely different from how we have done it?
1: Uh, School teachers can't afford to live in Seattle anymore. Architects can't afford to live in Seattle anymore. There aren't any government agencies or nonprofits that have solved that problem. The Seattle Social Housing Public Development Authority will solve that problem.
2: Hello everyone and welcome in. My name is Kiki Dominguez and my pronouns are they, them.
1: And I'm Ty.
3: My pronouns are he, him. And welcome to the Mirror Stage podcast.
2: Mm -hmm. Welcome on back. Welcome on back. Ty and I were just discussing our very, very busy weekend we've had over here at Mirror Stage. We have just had our first event in our series of events for Contexpo and it was an amazing time.
3: Yeah, it was really great. We did a poetry open mic, and then we did an art gallery with that as well. And then we also had um, guest speaker Omari Amili talk about the prison to school pipeline. Uh, So it was a weekend full of entertainment, but also uh, education and uh, really enlightening on these subjects as well.
2: Yeah, it was great fun. We had a really good time Getting all together, the poetry open mic was amazing. We had a young pro- poet, I believe she was like eleven years old, yeah. and it was great. We just had um, a bunch of different kinds of people there, a lot of different kinds of people in the audience. Our crowd was really diverse. I was talking with this about. Uh, I was talking about this with my partner Brian because we were talking about how everybody is. Ages were diverse. All of the different nationalities that were there and represented were diverse. All the different kinds of relationships with people that were there. We had like parents and children, married couples, single people, just different kinds of people coming in. And it was interesting to like see people come in and see the gallery and kind of ask some questions and then come back for the poetry.
3: Yeah, they were so curious about the art because one question stumped me. There was this guy and he asked, do the inmates have access to things like colored pencils and things that are sharp writing utensils? And when I thought about it, I was like, huh, they, they don't, you know, they definitely wouldn't. And a lot of those pieces were done with, like, graphite and colored pencils. Well, and the, and so. the coffee.
2: Remember the one with the that was made out of coffee?
3: Yeah. Can you
2: talk a little bit more about the art?
3: Yeah, for sure. Um, so all of it came from Books to Prisoners. Uh, that's an organization that they send books out to inmates. And in return, um, the inmates send them back. Uh, Pieces of art, and so this art was. I think maybe three of them were on, you know, traditional paper. Uh, the rest of them were either on like envelopes or like some type of parchment. And there was this whole collection um, that were that are called ponios, um, which are um, art specifically made by inmates. Who um, and this art is on like handkerchiefs or pieces of um, other cloth, like pillowcases and sheets as well, um, and. All of it was it was just incredible. Um, a lot of these pieces included letters from the inmates that um, were either book lists or list of authors or just them writing and talking to somebody who um, who has shown them care. you know, a lot of times people were, would say this is the best thing that's ever happened to them um, since they've been in jail, getting these books um, and having somebody, Um, that they feel like it's caring for them and reaching out for them and trying to help them um, push their life forward beyond uh, the prison system. So it was a really all around uh, incredible experience. And the letters was something that I had not even anticipated or planned Uh, That just amplified it 100% for me, you know.
2: Yeah, it was a really cool experience to see it and then see how everybody was interacting with the pieces and being really interested in the different kinds of stories being told through the art. I remember the one that really got me and we were chatting about this at the event. It was so simple. It was such a simple letter. And it was just requesting three books. And it was, if you could please send me a dictionary a thesaurus and a math book. And I was just like, wow, just how much information is gained from those three books alone. Just that concept of uh, yeah, if you're trying to better yourself and you're trying to get a job or write a paper for something you're trying to do in in school in these institutions. And things like a dictionary and a thesaurus are game Mm changer it'll really help you find a new word for i liked this or i thought this was a good thing and like just having that at your fingertips is something that these people do not have. And it was great that they were offering access to those kinds of
3: things. Yeah, that was a really touching letter. Like, it's really good to see them really wanting to change their lives and make a um, make a difference for themselves. That's why I love that our theme wasn't just incarceration. It was incarceration and redemption. And um, that was a really redeeming thing for me. You know, if I were in their position, I would think that I'd want, like, Harry Potter, some, some of those, like, fantasy books to get away and just have an escape. But it's not really about escaping their circumstances. It's really about taking in the circumstances and finding a solution to still have the best life after
2: it. Yes, and really finding that motivation and that drive to do that, uh, I think that that was really interesting too. Now moving on to talking about our lecture that we had, Amari, and hearing him talk about the drive that he had while being incarcerated and afterwards to continue his education, to continue in working in the field of education because he lectures, he teaches all these amazing things. Oh my gosh, I'm sorry, but I was losing my mind when he was talking about how, uh, a little spoiler for my people who haven't heard the lecture, but I highly recommend you find him on Humanities Washington and listen to the lecture because he spoke about when he was going in to graduate school and the Masters of Social Work was what was the degree he was trying to get, but how the person at the school of Uh, social work, turned him down and really stepped out of line and said, you know, you're not eligible for that degree and no one, we wouldn't take you and no one would take you. And now he teaches in that school. He teaches at the school of social work. Yeah. And my mind was just blown. Of course he, he got his master's degree. He got it in another field, but he is now teaching at the same school. Where somebody there was like, "You'll never be able to attend this school," and it's like, "Ha ha! Now you pay me,"
3: which <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> is the most it's beautiful better. thing.
2: Yes, hundred yeah. percent.
3: That's crazy. Yeah, he was very, um, very enlightening, and it was kind of unexpected for me hearing his uh, his upbringing with education. Like you would not think that he would be, you know, pushed back into the re- direction to continue his education because. He said he was on and off through school. There was like one year where he actually attended the whole year. And that was eighth grade, which is like the best year for a middle schooler, you know. So that was crazy to me um, to see like what really switched in his mind to go from living a life with low education and scamming to get by to say, okay, this is not sustainable. I need to take care of my children with something um, that is not a felony. Um, so it was uh, really, really encouraging and enlightening to see him there with his three kids as well. Hi, um, I know that all are his spitting image. Yes,
2: when he showed up, because a little bit of a spoiler, he and like maybe TMI, but he came from like a, a gathering with his kids for one of their birthdays, and I was just like, oh my god, I love this. I love that they're all on board. And they just like showed up. They were helping him carry his books and helping him get all situated. And it was great to see them and just like chat with them and have him just be such an inspiration. And that that just makes me happy. That also makes me happy that his kids are part of this. He tells this story so openly. His kids are a part of this conversation and this dialogue. Uh, they know what's going on and they clearly are still an active part of his life and part of the the difference he's making because he's having them come to these events with him
3: mm-hmm. yeah it was incredible especially right after father's day too mm-hmm. it's really good to uh see black dads being great black dads you yes, know
2: very true all right so how long can people go see the art over at finney neighborhood association and the finney center
3: yeah so we'll be hanging the art for two weeks which by the time you hear this you'll have one week left to Uh, Go check it out. So it'll be up until July 7th. And then uh, after that, our next event will be in August.
2: Yep, August 12th and 13th, same location, the Finney Center. The theme for August is veterans and PTSD. And over the two days, we'll be holding our art show. And we'll be having a story and poetry open mic, along with a yoga and mindfulness workshop and a writing class. So tell them a little bit more about the art. We are
3: currently accepting art pieces until August 5th for our next Context Pro event. And we would love to have art from veterans and those who are currently serving in the U.S. Armed Forces. Um, But if you have a story or a close connection through your family um, as well, we'd accept any art on the theme of uh, veterans and PTSD. And once again, uh, that uh, that deadline is August 5th. And for any information, you can visit our website, mirrorstage.org, or you can um, email us at contexpo at mirrorstage.org.
2: That same Friday night, we'll also be having our story and poetry open mic. So again, that is Friday, August 12th. We'll be having the... Gallery opening and signups will be starting around then, and then we will offer people up the opportunity to come and tell us a story. So the show itself will start at 7 p.m., and the latest we will go is until 9 p.m., and same deal. We are welcoming everyone who can relate to our theme of veterans and PTSD. I also like this because you don't have to be a veteran to participate, but you can also have veterans in your family, or, Ty, like you were saying, be a current member in the military. Or have a relationship with this concept of PTSD. I just want to hop in real quick and say that um, PTSD, for our listeners who are like, I've heard this, but I don't necessarily know what it is, It is stands for post-traumatic stress disorder. And with our current American state of being, there has been a lot going on recently, let alone in the last few years that uh, probably have a lot of us falling into this category of an individual dealing with post-traumatic stress disorder. So we are really welcoming and opening to all. So if you have any questions, if you are second-guessing anything, please, please, please reach out. We will be happy to chat more with you. So yeah, again, like Ty said, you can find our website. You can email us. You can chat us up on Facebook. Somebody, somebody takes care of that. (laughs) The Facebook, the Instagram. I'm 90% sure we have a Twitter, but every time I like say that, I'm just like, but do we, but I know we got a Facebook and an Instagram, so please come find us. Um, So yeah, so that will be Friday night. And then on Saturday, August 13th at 1 PM, we are holding a mindfulness and yoga workshop. So this will be a 90 minute workshop for all ages and abilities. This will be an opportunity to tap into our bodies and practice mindfulness techniques. This is gonna be in collaboration with Satya Wellness Collective. And Satya Wellness Collective is a wellness center dedicated to helping individuals making empowered decisions about their own healthcare and treatment options. They are committed to ethical, accessible, equitable, and justice-oriented mental health. So this event will be free. Um, Yoga mats are recommended, but if you do not have access to one, we are trying to gather yoga mats for the event. And so you don't need to bring a yoga mat. I'm sure that we will be able to make things accessible for those who do not have a yoga mat. As a little secret, if you don't have a yoga mat, towels are often also another uh, great tool to use. But with that in mind, we are currently collecting uh, yoga mats for any of our listeners who might want to donate one. So you can drop those off at the Finney Neighborhood Association. Again, another opportunity to contact us and let us know we have so many people based in Seattle. Somebody could probably swoop by or plan a drop-off uh, at somewhere that's convenient for you, but we really want to have this opportunity. And then when we are done with those yoga mats, we will be donating them to Satya Wellness Collective because we really stand with their mission and what they're trying to do for individuals for their own wellness. I highly recommend looking them up. I'll, I'll add this to our call to actions at the end, but they're a really great organization that um, should interest a lot of our listeners. And so on that same Saturday at 3 p.m., so shortly after our yoga class and our yoga slash mindfulness class, we're going to be having a writing workshop. We're going to have an opportunity to learn some new writing techniques. This is for our seasoned writers who have already been writing for any amount of time. And we're also going to be having this as an opportunity to be open for new writers. So this all, again, another opportunity where all are welcome here. And this workshop will be 60 minutes of interactive class and 30 minutes of optional sharing at the end of the event. You don't have to share, but we want to make this as welcoming a space as we possibly can. So all are welcome to participate, to come share, to stop in and take a peek and step on out. Whatever it is that you need to do, we are we are just a really open space that we're hoping to share with everybody nice
3: that sounds fun I cannot wait for the writing workshop I've never done one and I write a lot so I'm looking forward to that (laughs)
2: I was like, Ty, you're gonna
3: teach it, aren't you? <laughs> I'm teasing. I'm teasing. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. But if all that sounds fun to our listeners and uh you love this podcast you're listening to right now, uh, you can help us fund this and future productions by donating at our website, www.mirrorstage.org, or just text play it smart to 206 888 6477 That's 206-888-MIRR.
2: And as always, if you are not able to give financially, we always appreciate a good listen. So please share this podcast with your friends. Go ahead and rate and review us. You could also subscribe to us on any of your listening platforms. The support is always appreciated and welcome.
3: Yes. So today, listeners, we have a special treat for you. Uh, Today's interview is going to be with How's Our Neighbors slash Initiative 135. And I ran into this organization uh, in the Finney neighborhood while they were gathering signatures for I-135 at the community center. Um, And I-135 is an initiative to create the Seattle Social Housing Developer to develop, own, and maintain social housing for all of the workforce and communities in Seattle. And so today's interview will be with Camille Gix, who's a member of the advocacy team and steering committee, as well as Suresh Chengmuga, who's also a member of the steering committee.
2: So for this episode, it was just Ty doing the interview, which I was a little jealous about because it's the first time that the podcast has been done without me. Um, but that being said, I had a very busy weekend and I am currently in rehearsal as the director and dramaturg for another mere stage production. So that is why you will not hear from me, but I will, I hopefully I was there with tie and spirit.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and...
2: most definitely.
3: <laughs> Especially with my follow-ups. I'm like, what would Kiki say?
2: <laughs> <laughs> but it was a great conversation and I will be here with you all to reflect after the interview.
3: Yes, so without further ado, here's our interview with How's Our Neighbors. Okay, so welcome to the Mirror Stage Podcast. Thank you both for joining me today. Um, We can start by just introducing yourself. Uh, your name and your pronouns.
0: Uh, yeah. Hi, I'm Camille Gix. I use she, her pronouns. I'm a steering committee member for the House Our Neighbors Coalition and Initiative 135.
1: Hi, my name is Suresh Chanmugam. I use he, him pronouns. I uh, work as a software engineer in Seattle. Uh, and uh, I volunteer with a group called Tech for Housing that is part of the House Our Neighbors Coalition. And I also have been serving on the steering committee. For house our neighbors' I one thirty five
3: campaign. We're storytelling podcast, so I just want to know what the storytelling mean to each of you.
0: Um, I think for me, as someone who works in advocacy, in politics, and activism, and specifically right now around social housing, uh, storytelling is such an essential part of how we run this campaign. Uh, we need to, you know, people are telling us stories about how they are living and not thriving in the city of Seattle and being able to use those stories to show people why we need social housing is so essential. And so storytelling is a really, really essential part of our campaign.
1: Similarly, um, storytelling for me is, is foundational to how I view, um, these issues that we're working on uh the story i always start with is i moved to seattle from new york city in 1999 my rent was about 250 a month for a bedroom in a shared house um and you know i lived with great housemates who did all sorts of different things one was a city planner one was a product manager at amazon one worked in retail at um Uh, babeland one worked at real retail at a convenience store a couple were in grad school Uh, some worked at nonprofits like americorps and uh, now the city is really unaffordable to anyone who's not a software engineer uh, particularly if you want to raise a family that's the story i tell everyone about why it's so so deeply important for us to to find really strong, lasting solutions to our housing crisis.
3: I hey I definitely agree because uh, it seems like it's getting worse everywhere, you know, and I had never heard of the term like tent cities until I moved here um, to Seattle and I could see them for myself, just like a field of people just sleeping in tents. And I, I grew up where plenty of people, you know, like lived in the projects and there was uh, low income housing for families. But it doesn't seem like in cities like Atlanta, where I moved here from, and in Seattle, there's uh, not a lot of solutions like that. Um, So I do also want to know any specific stories uh, that might have had a lasting impact on
0: you. There's a building in the city of Seattle right now that, uh, whose landlord recently passed away. And this landlord was an older gentleman who had kept rents very low for a really long time and kept the uh, rents of like over 100 tenants um, very, very low for a long time. And, you know, without rent, formal rent control was essentially rent controlling their apartment. After he died, they the building is now going to be sold to the highest bidder. And these tenants have been trying to organize and trying to get a nonprofit to buy their building And they all just each and every one of them has such an impactful story and they all are, you know, trying to get this place that they've lived in for generations or, you know, years to remain affordable so that they can stay there. Um, but they're, you know, nonprofits aren't willing to take on the costs of a deteriorating building. And they are looking at financial eviction because likely a private developer is going to buy up this building. And so it's just a, a story of organizing and, you know, renters rights and the kind of failures of our system that is creating the need for social housing that we have. And creating the need for this publicly owned, permanently affordable housing that has to stay in the hands of community versus kind of just floating amongst private entities.
3: (laughs) I might be jumping ahead a little bit here, but are there like resources for nonprofits who want to buy buildings like that? Like, do they have access to grants or any kind of government um, funding if they would like to purchase a building? to be used for um, social housing?
0: There are definitely resources like that. um, But unfortunately, the types of resources that exist for nonprofits to develop and for any affordable housing to be developed are incredibly limited and limiting. Um, Federal funding that is typically reserved for these sorts of restoration projects have a lot of limitations on them. They have affordability limits, as in like how many or how high the affordability can go. It has uh, limits on who's allowed to live in it. So if you're an undocumented immigrant, or if you have a criminal background, you can't live in the housing. Um, And so the federal funding sources that are used for these types of restorations and development for a lot of nonprofits and other affordable housing providers are just, they put a lot of limitations on those providers, but they also are limited in the sense that there's just not enough. Um, so, it's a combination of issues for sure.
1: I'll jump in and say uh, another huge limitation we have is that it is, this sounded like the the, uh, the building that Camille was talking about has 100 units in it or at least 100 residents in most of Seattle, 75% of residential Seattle, it's illegal to build that. Uh, building, I've never looked at it, but I know it is because we have uh, a deeply exclusionary and racist history with our land use laws starting in 1920. Uh, many areas progressively became designated as only for luxury homes, basically single family houses. And so the reason that lots of for-profit uh, residential companies, landlords are coming in and wanting to buy this building is there is a scarcity of places where our city's government will allow uh, that kind of multifamily housing, and it's a great uh, well, whenever you've got a constrained supply or something like that, it's a great opportunity to make a profit. and it's really hard to change those uh, those land use regulations. You can't change them with a voter initiative.
3: Yeah, that would really take a, an overhaul of uh, the legislature, really. I feel like this is a really good start, but it's definitely going to take a lot of work. Um, Suresh, you happen to have a story? Uh, that has had a lasting impact on you you'd like to share
1: i uh every year this is i think a federal mandate uh counties uh need to do a point in time count of um how many how many people are unsheltered or homeless in their region and they, they do it on one night um and uh I read this is probably ten years ago uh, about some folks doing a point time count. They were going through maybe an area where there were some homeless encampments, and it was I think in the winter. And they found someone who was who had passed away, who died. And I, I, I I've had trouble finding this news story, but I, I remember they um, uh, the volunteers who had found her body went and uh, and and learned more about her story um, and. Uh, like so many people who are homeless, she had been sexually abused as a child, which later led to mental health problems, including substance abuse, and uh, those were some of the uh, the causes of of her. You know, she died in her fifties uh, um, alone in a in a field. Um, I, and that was probably the day I became radicalized when I read that story, uh, learning about uh, how. Uh, that deeply unjust story of that person's life and and how it led to uh, their very, very tragic end uh, yeah, that's motivated me and and why I spend as much time as I can outside of work and parenting trying trying to um, solve these problems.
3: Yes, thank you for sharing that. and it definitely touches on like that homelessness is always it's always a deeper issue, like a mental health issue or um a cycle of poverty that they can't escape because of their circumstances. So I could understand how that could hit home and definitely radicalize you for sure. And I think what has really made me want to get involved with Seattle in general is that there's such a big wealth divide. You know, like you said, um, you can't stay in the city if you're not a software engineer. And that's a high high level entry to get uh, into
1: you can't just like you have to go to school top 20 percent of seattle households earn 18 times what the bottom 20 percent. 18 times that's higher.
3: ridiculous um so yeah there's a huge wealth divide and um and i'm new here so i i love just learning and hearing these stories because i just want to know what i can do to help uh so for both of you i would like to know What is your origin story?
0: I think for me, it's like, it's a a pretty convoluted, I'm like, you know, a white woman. I grew up in Seattle in a like middle-class homeowner family. You know, my parents are like, your Seattle progressives. They're like, you know, well-meaning and they, um, you know, generally, I think fight for the right things. But I don't think that I really started to get radicalized until college when I met my best friend who uh, at the time was an undocumented immigrant. And I started to learn a lot more about immigrant rights issues. And that led me into activist spaces that talked a lot more about imperialism and the causes of our immigration crisis and all of the just, you know, the problems with our system, with the the capitalist system that harms not just the people within our country, but people around the world. I had the privilege of getting to live in both Ecuador and Chile for four years after college which are very different. Um, Chile especially has like a huge activist culture, a huge like leftist activist culture. In 2019, I was present for their uprising against their um, right-wing government and like the history of fascist dictatorships they had and just got to witness these much more radical spaces than anything that I had ever grown up around. And so I think that that kind of like I just started learning a lot in those spaces. And then once I moved back to Seattle, you know, at this point, I'm a grad student living with my immigrant partner who can't work because his visa doesn't include a work permit. And so we live with my parents. We're 28 years old. And the only option that we had to be in Seattle is living with them because it's too expensive of a city for someone paying, you know, thousands of dollars in tuition every few months and someone who doesn't work. And so it's just, yeah, housing is such an important issue. And it's, I think, the number one issue in Seattle and around the country right now um, because while, well, yeah, I do believe that there is a certain amount of homelessness that is caused by these, you know, the mental health issues and sexual abuse. Homelessness is also very much a housing thing. And the lack of truly affordable housing is the number one reason that we have so many people that are unhoused in the city because rent burden is real. And we need to find a way to to get people paying what they can actually afford or nothing so that they can be in a safe and healthy environment.
1: I, I grew up in a deeply privileged family. You know, both, both my parents were immigrants, but their families where they grew up in Sri Lanka were pretty wealthy. Highly educated doctors, ambassadors, engineers, and 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 my parents in, in turn were were educated, highly educated, uh, both scientists. And I grew up without needing anything financially, uh, and having just like deep base of support for excelling academically. And really felt like I could do anything. I went to college. I went to Harvard, and I flunked out twice. Uh, and I would say at the time I was pretty deeply depressed, hard to know what's cause and effect. But I had taken one computer programming class. And just from taking that one computer programming class, I was able to get a job after I flunked out of Harvard and I had an extraordinary, you know, capitalism's been great to me. My wife and I own a house in Seattle. Uh, we have three children. We can afford to raise a family here in Seattle. And just recognizing that. Not everyone has had that good fortune that I've had is what I think deeply motivates me to, to ensure that we end all forms of suffering uh, on this planet. And I choose to focus on housing because it's so foundational and it's, it's like a tax we pay multiple times. Uh, just because you can afford housing doesn't mean you can afford to live here because if you want to have children, childcare is really expensive because any childcare provider you hire, whether it's a man who works in your home or if you go to a daycare, they, uh, they have high housing costs. It's like a second mortgage payment to have two children uh, in Seattle. It's like an extra four to $6,000 a month in childcare costs. Infant daycare in downtown Seattle is about $3,000 a month. We simply can't function anymore as a city. And it's deeply unjust.
3: And it feels like it's only getting worse too. You know, as this year talks of inflation or corporate greed, everything just seems like it's twice as expensive as it was this time last year.
4: If you're enjoying this podcast and would like to support it and other Mirror Stage programming, you can make a tax-deductible donation via our website, MirrorStage.org, or text "Play It Smart" to two zero six eight eight eight. Six four seven seven. That's two zero six eight 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 M I R R.
3: So I want to know um, you've given us your origin story, and I I get why you both got involved with this kind of work, um, but I want to know how specifically did you start House Our Neighbors?
0: Yeah, so I definitely didn't start House Our Neighbors. Uh, it was uh, very much like a community. I don't know what to call it. It was so. Last year in um, April, a ballot measure that would have, um, it was called Charter Amendment 29. It was better known as Compassion Seattle. It was a proposed amendment to the city charter that would have enshrined the encampment sweeps into our city constitution. Um, And so how's our neighbors as a group, um, specifically our co-chairs, Tiffany McCoy and Ty Reed, came together and decided to form this coalition of housing advocates and folks with lived experience um, with homelessness and renters and just people from a wide array of spaces, including tech for housing. And they uh, brought together all of us um, under the guise of real change, the street newspaper, um, which is our C3 sponsor. And, They brought us together in coalition to oppose this charter amendment. And so we ran um, as a coalition, we ran an opposition campaign to the charter amendment um, and were successful in August in um, helping to get it kicked off the ballot. So we never saw it come to city voters. From there, that's when we decided to go forward with our own offensive measure, putting forward our own ballot initiative in the form of Initiative 135.
1: My journey to this organization is pretty similar. In 2017, 2018, I started to look around and say, I'm sure there are other tech workers out there who are interested in solving uh, the problems we have with housing affordability and homelessness. And I I joined Tech for Housing. I've been volunteering with them for several years. Uh, When I heard about Compassion Seattle, all of us at Tech for Housing said, wow, this is terrible. And we... Uh, We quickly, you know, endorsed uh, everyone to to vote against it or not sign it. And I talked to some folks in Seattle, including um, some folks in an organization called Share the Cities, And I said, I'm really concerned about this Charter Amendment 29. It seems like it's being funded by some really right-wing folks. Like Trump's top donor in Washington State was putting money into it. And folks at share the city said, you should talk to Ty and Tiffany. Uh, And I, I got on a phone call. Uh, I remember I was sitting at this very desk here, uh, and Ty and Tiffany listened to some ideas I had. And they said, no, your ideas are junk, uh, but why don't you come join us? We're we forming this coalition called House Our Neighbors. Um, and I did. Um, and uh, the Tech for Housing has uh, endorsed uh, everything that, that the House Our Neighbors Coalition has been working for. And you know, after successfully... Defeating Charter Amendment 29, uh, Tech for Housing has been deeply supportive of uh, the path forward, doing something really constructive and and, and deeply lasting to solve our housing crisis, uh, I-135, the social housing letter initiative.
3: Nice. Thank you both for sharing that. Uh, so I think I, as well as our listeners, would appreciate Um, If both of you could define what social housing is.
0: So, social housing, as it is defined around the world, so cities around the world use social housing models. um, Toronto, Vienna, countries like Uruguay and Singapore, and even within the United States, Montgomery County, Maryland has a social housing developer. And so, We, as a campaign, kind of took all of these models and looked at them and tried to find their commonalities to break down social housing into four pillars. Um, And those pillars are, one, that they are permanently public. So they are public forever. They can't ever be sold. No shares or entities that are owned by social housing developers can be sold off to the private market. The second pillar being that it is permanently affordable. People never pay more than thirty percent of their income in rent in our model, um, and they also uh, rents are only based off of what is needed to maintain, maintain and operate the housing as well as pay off loans of the building. Third pillar is. Uh, cross-class communities. So that meaning people from a wide range of income levels are living together in community. This is important for a few reasons. One being to eliminate the historical segregation that U.S. public housing has had. It also helps with the financing model because folks at the higher end of the income spectrum are able to help to cross-subsidize the folks at the lower end of the income spectrum. And then finally, the fourth pillar is renter leadership. Um, And so that is essential to social housing because uh, only renters living in their buildings know what they need. Corporations and, you know, even government entities don't know what renters need. Renters know what renters need. And so their leadership of their own housing is an essential component of social housing.
1: Uh, I totally subscribe to the four pillars of, uh, of social housing that can be outlined. The way I often pitch it to folks, since I live in the capitalist world and you know work in the tech industry like municipal broadband right like do you have a friend who lives in a city where they have municipal broadband where you know your high-speed internet is just run by the city or a public utility it's fast it's reliable and it's inexpensive do you want to live in a city where you're paying Comcast who never shows up when, when it breaks and paying absurdly high fees for something that's so critically important and foundational to uh, to thriving uh, in, in life do you, want it, do you want to be paying someone who's making a profit like Vulcan big real estate developer or should this just be something that we, as a city and our our, our public funds, uh, build and, and operate in perpetuity. Um, and then, yeah, uh, you're free to do whatever you want to to make your life you, you like capitalism go ahead and, and make your company that, that does whatever good stuff. Um but foundational things like healthcare, education, transportation, communication, and, and housing are 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 things that I think our, our public sphere can provide efficiently and more effectively and equitably to everyone.
3: Definitely I agree. And it seems like with a lot of these issues, you know, we're the last to catch up, you know, we're see these models in Europe and even in Canada, but you know, we're behind. And you said, is that the only place in the whole U.S. that's doing a social housing model? In Maryland, Montgomery County? Yeah. Wow. Currently.
0: There are other movements right now for social housing in other places. California has made it really far in just like the last few months on a bill going through their state legislature to bring social, a social housing entity to the state of California. Hawaii is also quite far along on their journey. They've been working on it for four years. And there's a number of other cities who have then, since we've launched our campaign reached out to us with interest in doing their own thing as well so this is definitely like yeah there's one now but i would say within the next few years we're going to see a lot more social housing developers popping up around the country because this is something that people really want and we need to be doing
1: i'll point out that the gdp of the seattle metro area is about 375 billion dollars a year roughly double what it was 20 years ago when i moved here from New york city that's larger than the country of singapore a lot of people who know about Singapore where 80% of uh, residents live in social housing say oh we could never do something like sleek and modern Singapore right like they must spend a whole lot of money on that but we can like we're as wealthy as the entire country of Singapore we can do this
3: most definitely can there's plenty and i don't think you know it wouldn't take all of that wealth to do it either like you could do it with half of that amount and it still serve a lot of people um i think it's just about getting the right idea um cuz you know I have never heard of social housing and I know that there's like a bunch of other people who haven't. Uh, So it's really just about getting it to the right hands and the right eyes and really, you know, having a force behind it. And a lot of people just uh, like making it go viral, you know, putting a lot of power towards it. I would also like if you can just kind of break down what the difference between uh, social housing would be versus the projects or um, government housing, you know,
0: Yeah, totally. So social housing, I think that one of the biggest differences is the component of renter leadership. So there's no affordable housing or public housing um, in the country in the US that is uh, doing anything along the lines of renter leadership, they claim, you know, renter input. Um, which is typically just like these listening sessions that typically don't change a lot um, about the conditions in which they're living. Um, so renter leadership is one of the really big components that cha- that is different. Um, but beyond that, there's the component of... Public housing is a federally funded program um, that is deeply, deeply underfunded. Um, we essentially don't build public housing anymore because it was so unsustainable. Um, it need because it was meant for only the very lowest income people. There is no way they need money every year to be funneled into public housing to maintain and operate. And the rents that are being paid by the residents are not sufficient to maintain and operate the buildings. And so social housing takes the, there are still spaces and lots of room for very low income residents. But it also has these higher income residents that their rent helps to subsidize that operation and maintenance so that there's not the constant need for federal grants or even city grants. Um, You know, startup money is important. We do want to pursue a progressive revenue source for the within the city of Seattle so that it can be, you know, even it can build and build and build and acquire buildings all over the city. Um, But the great thing about social housing, is that because it is mixed income and is more self-sustaining. But then with the difference with nonprofits is that it is public forever. And, you know, we see nonprofits selling off their properties all the time when they no longer are financially sustainable. And so recently, a different public developer within the city called Community Roots sold off a property um, up on 15th Avenue, Fredonia, I believe it's called. And uh, that is low-income housing that now it's likely going to be sold off to the private market. And I am certain that almost every person currently living in that building will be evicted. And so with Initiative 135 and social housing, it is forever public and cannot be sold off to the private market. And so people have a home forever, um, not just temporarily. If their income rises, they can stay. If it lowers, they can stay and pay a lower rent. So it's well, it's a forever housing idea that public housing and nonprofit housing hasn't historically
3: been. Right. Like the government housing and projects are really just kind of here. You stay here until you get, you know, better circumstances and then you go somewhere else. It's not really trying to um, it's like putting a Band-Aid on a bullet wound. You know, it's just a temporary solution for a permanent
1: problem. And the government doesn't earn back that investment it made in someone's economic future an opportunity, right? In social housing, someone moves in because they have a low income and then God forbid they go to a coding boot camp and become a tech bro like me and they're making $200,000 a year. They don't get kicked out They may pay a higher rent. This law, I-135, says their rent should not be more than 30% of their income. But then that social housing developer earns back that investment it made in in that person and their household. Now they're paying a a higher but not punitive, not extractive rent. And that helps uh, the public development authority be far more sustainable in the long term also want to note that our country at the federal level has had a long history of plowing massive amounts of money into social housing, but only for upper middle class families. That's the mortgage interest tax deduction. So if you are an upper, upper middle class family and you purchase a house, you can deduct uh, some portion of the interest you're paying on your mortgage uh, from your federal taxes. That up until recently was a $30 billion a year subsidy for mostly upper middle class, mostly white families. Um, and that wealth then becomes permanently theirs, intergenerational wealth. You know, people retire, they sell their home, they downsize, they help their children make down payments on homes. We, we already have a, uh, a social, social housing for the wealthy. Already in this country, uh, we just don't have it for the rest of us.
3: That's that's ridiculous. So, what is the what's the argument against social housing?
1: I think a lot of folks feel like they've been caught flat-footed uh, with the announcement of this voter initiative. A lot of folks who are already in our city government, or they are. Running a uh, say a nonprofit uh, that builds affordable housing, and they're like, "Wait a minute, uh, we're working in this space." Um, and I think their initial reaction often is, "Oh, but we're already working on this." But I don't think they realize that. So they're you know they're they're saying, "Well, uh, more more uh, you know uh, organizations, you're creating a, a you know one more organization to work on this problem. How about we just continue investing in what we've got?" But uh, because of all those federal tax credits that Camille uh mentioned that power all of the affordable housing being built today those organizations and government agencies really can only serve folks who are low income making 70 80% of the median income or below that's just part of the the requirements of that that uh that limited federal funding that they get and those federal tax credits um so so yeah, what, one of the arguments is like against this is, hey, there are already folks working on this, but they're not really. Uh, school teachers can't afford to live in Seattle anymore. Architects can't afford to live in Seattle anymore. And, and this, this measure is really uh, mixed, cross-class, mixed income. It's meant to really uh, benefit everyone. Another argument that you'll hear from, from folks is, oh, well, there isn't any funding. Uh, in this in this uh, voter initiative, and it is true that there is no there's no diversion of existing uh, revenue streams, um, city or county or state revenue streams, into this public developer in in this voter initiative. But many things about uh, a social housing public development authority inherently make it less less dependent on on taxpayer funds. I think as Camille mentioned, the cost subsidization uh, that happens uh, as 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 folks economic opportunity improves and and they're paying higher, but not punitive rents. Uh, but also as a public developer, it can issue bonds. Uh, on, they can borrow money on Wall Street guaranteed against future rents. And, and also, I think the House Neighbors Coalition is committed to following up this voter initiative with uh, progressive revenue. I, I don't know if any of you know, this is a favorite topic for those of us that take Seattle has the most regressive tax system in the country, possibly the world. It has an extraordinarily evil uh, and immoral tax system where the wealthiest folks like Howard Schultz, who, by the way, grew up in social housing, middle class, uh, um, publicly built housing in in New York City, Uh, he pays a tiny, tiny percent of his income. And uh, he's the CEO of Starbucks. In local taxes, city, county, state taxes, and someone who's earning minimum wage in Seattle ends up paying 14%, 15% of their income in uh, taxes, uh, city taxes, county taxes, state taxes. That's because we're highly dependent on things like sales taxes uh, to, to generate revenue. Yeah, the Hauser Neighbors team and coalition have a lot of great ideas, new tools that we can do to have progressive revenue sources uh, to fund housing. And I also uh, shout out to uh, a progressive majority in the city council who passed Jumpstart, uh, which is a progressive revenue source uh, that has already brought in $50 million more. In its first year, two hundred seventy million million, two Two thirds of that goes to affordable housing.
0: Yeah, I think that just one really small thing, because Suresh definitely hit all of the big ones. Um, I think one thing that I've heard in some meetings that I've taken uh, is similar to what Suresh is saying, oh, we already have things, you know, it, it, lots of people that are saying like, oh, we have the capacity to do this without building a new entity. Why create a new entity or a new bureaucracy, as they like to put it? What we say to that is, first of all, this isn't a new bureaucracy. It is not part of the government. It is pseudo governmental. It is run by the community, and so it's not a bureaucracy in the you know negative connotation that a lot of people put on that word. And every time that I've been asked, like, okay, why don't we just have the Seattle Housing Authority, which is our public housing authority, um, you know, start doing this type of housing? My like my big question is, okay, great if it can, why aren't we then? And they don't have an answer to that because there's no interest in trying to innovate. And I think that more than the fact that people around the city really deeply want this, we've spent the last eight, nine weeks gathering signatures across the city and it has been one of the most positive political experiences I've ever had. Just people are deeply committed to this. We have hundreds of volunteers that have gone out collecting signatures because of how deeply committed they are. So, beyond all of that, there's also the issue of like, we're building a movement here. And we know that our city government is doing what they can, but not enough. And that's why we see people being displaced. That's why. There are more people falling into homelessness every week, every year, more black and brown communities being displaced from the city. And we are trying to build a movement around this issue where we build excitement about what the possibilities are, what, what else could our city be like if we were to do something completely different from how we have done it. And so just tagging it on to an existing entity would be great if they were willing to do it, but they aren't and they haven't. And so this is this is the people coming together where our coalition is every single one of us has some housing story where, you know, majority renters, some of us have experienced homelessness. Like we are building a movement from the ground up and I think that's what's so beautiful about this campaign beyond the actual technical components of the initiative, which I also care a lot about. But, you know, it's a multifaceted approach.
3: Yes, thank you. I actually would like to know more about the initiative because we've, you know, we've kind of talked about it and mentioned it um, a bit throughout this episode. But if you can just tell us, you know, exactly what it aims to tackle and Uh, some of even the language that um, it uses.
0: Yeah, definitely. Initiative 135 aims to create a public developer of social housing, which would be called the Seattle Social Housing Developer. Which would be um, uh, charged with creating, acquiring, building, maintaining, operating housing developments for uh, low, very, very low to middle, middle high income people. Um, and so it achieves this by requiring that all buildings. Have a wide mix of incomes from zero percent of the area median income, so aka zero dollars per year, all the way up to 120 percent of the median income, which for a family of two is about um, 120,000 dollars a year. So it's a really diverse range of incomes. It is required to be permanently public, so there no shares are allowed to be sold to the private market or sold to other entities. And it has to be public forever. It is permanently affordable. People will never pay more than 30% of their income in rent. That goes for the very lowest income people all the way up to the highest income people that are living in the housing. And it has a bonding authority, which allows for it to sell low interest bonds in exchange for loans that it can pay off with the promise of future rents from its renters. The board, the governance board, so those who are in charge of leading the developer, will be a majority renters living in the housing. So, of the 13 members, seven of them are renters living in the social housing that is created. The other six members are uh, from a variety of professional backgrounds, including urban planning and green development. Um, we have an appointee from the the uh, community that organizations that build housing for marginalized communities. Union labor is on the board. Um, and so it's just a it's a wide variety of backgrounds. Public housing finance, it is uh, definitely a very diverse board. People often ask about the renter majority and how can we expect a renter majority to have the qualifications to run an entity of such uh, magnitude as a social housing developer in charge of building and creating housing across the city. First of all, I think it's wildly underestimating renters and their capacity to learn and grow um, and just, you know, know what's best for themselves. But additionally, that's why we have the six members who are from these different backgrounds that will allow them to, you know, help understand the financing components and the planning and all of that. Um, And additionally, the seven board members that are renters will be, are required to be paid for their time on the board, as well as given staff support from experts in the field who can help advise them on their decisions. And a couple of other like really cool components of the initiative include that all new buildings will have to be built to passive house standards, which is um, one of the highest standards for green development in the world right now. And additionally, um, there is a stark eviction prevention through uh, restorative conflict resolution practices will be required. And if zoning permits, then all buildings will be required to uh, have have like on the ground floor some sort of community resource that fosters community either as a daycare or a community kitchen or garden or some form of way to foster community amongst the members who live in each building.
1: I want to jump in a little bit about uh, the resident-led board. You know, slightly more than half the members of the board of this public development authority would be residents of those other of housing, and how how important uh, that is. Um, if you look at the boards, there are a number of organizations, including three existing public development authorities that build affordable housing in Seattle. Yeah, well, if you look at their boards, so many of the people uh, on those boards are executives at large corporations, and they have these conflicting obligations, these dual uh uh obligations between the, the the organization or PDA that they're that they're helping to manage uh and and the and the company they work for uh and so they're never they never have that incentive to really fight for fixing our deeply upside down regressive tax system that is one of the things that hampers our existing uh organizations that build affordable housing is they just don't have the ability to 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 fight for what easily could be a massive confusion of uh, of funding for affordable housing if we'd simply asked Howard Schultz CEO of Starbucks andy Jassy CEO of Amazon they both live in Seattle uh, to pay the same tax rate as someone who earns minimum wage if we did that we would have uh, an enormous amount of funding to be building housing but they but but you know these board members can't do that they're you know they have uh, an obligation to another organization there that, the, you know, the for-profit company they work for. And they would probably uh, get a tap on their shoulder and say, no, you can't. What, what are you, why are you fighting for that?
3: Yeah, that that's unfortunate. And I love that it includes so many things to protect uh, themselves from corporate corporations and having people like that on the board. I love that, you know, have the board it has to be people who live in the building. Um, because, you know, like you said earlier, Camille, how, how would you know what they even need? So like how how do how are people selected? Is it like a lottery-based kind of thing or
0: yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so the lottery would definitely be like because the each building will require to have a robust mixture of incomes, the lottery will, you know, take from you know, if someone applies and they're in a certain range of income and there's a spot open for that range of income, then they would get that spot. Um so it's not going to automatically you know, preference people with higher incomes, um, because they need to be like, you know, the idea is that this is more or less like profit neutral. So it's not making a profit at all. It is just enough to pay the maintenance operations and loan, um, and anything left over would be, you know, used to help, uh, create the pot that would build new buildings in the future. But the idea being that, um, there's not a lot left over because we're trying to get as many low-income people into the housing as possible and then the high-income people come in to help subsidize that um and so yeah that's the idea with the lottery system
3: so it's like a controlled lottery like there's a certain amount of spots for this range and spots for this range and spots for that range and then it gets filled Not just completely random.
0: Yeah, exactly.
3: So as a nonprofit, these social public developers, would they be like, would they have the same opportunity to get funds as like startups would, per se? Yeah,
0: yeah, for sure. So um, it's not a nonprofit in the sense that it's like not a, it wouldn't be like a 501c3 organization, um, but it can take funding from any source that's willing to give, including private funding. Um, one difference between that is that frequently, you know, large donors to nonprofits will then get a board seat for their time or a building named after them or something. So if a private investor would like to, or a private donor, I won't say investor because, um, it's not going to pay off, pay dividends or anything like that. If they want to give money out of the goodness of their heart, they can, they won't get anything for it, but they are welcome to. So it is, yeah, the developer will be able to get money from pretty much any source that's willing to give it money. It just, they don't get anything for it um, other than just knowing that they've helped, you know, create buildings that will house people for an affordable rate forever.
1: Mackenzie Scott, if you're listening, Mackenzie Scott, uh, formerly married to Jeff Bezos and has been giving away billions of dollars uh, a year. Yeah, if you're listening to this podcast, uh, uh, hint, hint, meal would like to talk to
3: you. Yeah, we'll definitely at least try to at her on something so she can peep it. Um, so I just want to know uh, what we can do, what I can do, what our listeners can do um, to A, help initiative I-35, I-135 get passed, and how we can help um, house our neighbors and anything else that you all have going on.
1: Yeah, I have two things I would love for you to ask your listeners. One is ask them to vote yes on 135. Uh, The other is if they hear someone, maybe an elected leader who's been asked about this initiative or or someone who runs an organization that that, um, builds affordable housing, criticize this, simply ask them, what have they done in the last 15 years to ensure that a school teacher can afford to live in Seattle and raise a family in Seattle? Um, because there aren't any government agencies or nonprofits that have solved that problem, and to see the Seattle Social Housing Public Development Authority will solve that problem.
0: Absolutely, and I think that yeah, just like Suresh said, vote yes on Initiative One Thirty Five. We hope in November, where um, City Clerk and King County Elections is currently counting our signatures and validating them uh, to make sure that they. You know, assuming that they get that all done and it's enough, then we will be on the November ballot. We want folks to vote yes on initiative 135. And um, more importantly, vote vote yes, but also talk to your neighbors. Um, we know that renters are going to be our base in this Uh, in this fight to get this passed. And um, one of the most successful ways that past candidates and campaigns have gotten gotten passed or voted in is through uh, renter mobilization, going to the people in your buildings and talking to them and just telling them why this is important to you or why this is important in general. Um, So yeah, if you're a renter, or even if not, talk to your friends, talk to your neighbors and tell them about social housing and how this could be transformational for our city um, and how this could be transformational for them As a renter, Uh, almost every renter I've talked to in this entire campaign process has said, man, I want to live in social housing. That sounds amazing. I want to live in social housing. It's a really wonderful model that has just done such great things in all other parts of the world. And so talk to neighbors, talk to friends, volunteer, Uh, go to houseourneighbors.org to sign up to volunteer as we start our get out the vote efforts through the summer and into the fall because there will be lots and lots of opportunities to get involved. Awesome.
3: Thank you both so much. Um, is there anything else you would like our listeners to know before I let you both go?
1: Click here to subscribe. This is a great podcast. Keep listening to this and other episodes. <laughs>
3: Definitely, definitely throw throw a couple of those in there. But thank you both so much. I've deeply enjoyed learning more about How's Our Neighbors and Initiative 135. Unfortunately, I don't live in the Seattle limits. I did try to sign the petition uh, when I, I met a volunteer and got connected with the organization. But I'm going to do, you know, whatever I can do uh, to make sure our listeners, make sure my close community here um, also knows about what you all are doing. Um, So thank you both so much for your time today. Um, And go out and enjoy the rest of your time in D.C., Camille, and uh, enjoy the rest of your day, Suresh.
0: Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. If you're enjoying this podcast and
4: would like to support it and other Mirror Stage programming, you can make a tax-deductible donation via our website, mirrorstage.org, or text Play it Smart to 206-888-6477.
2: That's 206-888-MIRR. I loved this interview. I knew so little about this concept, about this initiative, about how governmental housing works. So I was really intrigued and I learned so very, very much. And I will say one of the biggest things that I learned from this was the limitations that are on the current abilities of low-income housing and how some of these things can be overcome through these new housing initiatives that are trying to uh, take place in Seattle.
3: Yeah, like like with government and public housing, the government doesn't get anything from that. So there's very low and they don't really feel inclined to make it nice or make it more, more of a permanent solution. It's really just um, something short, kind of crappy and temporary to say, hey, you have a roof over your head. But with social housing, you know, it, it aims to really make a more permanent solution in these cities. Specifically, Initiative 135 uh, would make the building permanently public. You know, it would um, actually never go out of the public space. Yes, well, I think uh, that I'm like what like you're that. saying right
2: there about making it always be a part of the public space is an approach to this that Americans do not have. I think that a lot of us, I think there are many strong statements about Americans, (laughs) but I think a big thing that people need to understand about different cultures is their approach to life. And one of the things about America is it's this idea that like what I get is what I have earned and from my hard work. So what you have is based off of your hard work. So if you don't have a house or if you don't have access to these things, That is your own doing. And so why should I help you be a part of this? And so I really like this idea that they're trying to let go of that idea because they're trying to have it be a more of a realization that we are only as strong as our weakest link. And so we're all in this together. And so if that person does not have a home, then we are all in sense losing something as a community.
3: Right. And it's still fair, you know, because... You know, it's not like we're going to build this housing unit and just put low-income families into it and fill it completely with, you know, people who are currently unhoused and just make sure they don't pay anything. It's going to be supported by the top percent makers who live in there. And then there will be a community who aren't paying anything because they were on the street. It's breaking down the stigma of public housing, whereas pretty much black and brown communities just filling it up, whereas uh, it's creating this uh, mixed community of different income levels and different types of family units. And uh, I love that idea because it's not just tackling houselessness at that point, it's tackling a much bigger issue um, around you know, public housing and who lives in uh, yes. affordable housing. Yes, I also want to say it's not just
2: tackling this issue of housing; it's also tackling this issue of othering people. Like there doesn't, there should not be a reason that somebody who makes ten thousand dollars a year can't live in the same space as somebody and be a part of the same community and in the same neighborhood as somebody who makes a hundred thousand dollars a year. And so, breaking down these barriers about who deserves what living wise is also a big thing. And one of the things they said was they cap it at the 30%. So if you are making $0, then you pay zero. But if you start making more money, then you will be expected your income increases. You will be expected to pay the 30%, but it won't go over that. And that is a huge issue because there are so many people living in Seattle right now who are paying more than 30% of their income to just live. And if you go by these ideas about like how to budget and how to save and how to invest in your future, you, you can't, if you're paying 50% of your income. No matter what that income is, because the rest of your money has to go towards anything else you need to survive, specifically in the city, whether that's a car, insurance, let that out of there, a bus pass. But then we go into this whole argument of like how much time this takes to commute. And again, if you cannot live in the city where you are working, how much, how does this break down to how much you're making an hour versus spending for housing, any kind of insurance, any way you can take care of yourself, getting to and from work, all that jazz. Yeah, it's
3: definitely bleak. It's really unfortunate that, you know, there aren't any kind of resources as far as housing goes um, to help people living inside Seattle. Also, with the, the wealth disparity uh, in the city limits, it's just like we, the money's there, you know, for all of this. It's right there. It's just literally sitting there. But um, it's like they don't want to use it. And there's no legislation in place to allow them to tax. Higher making families more. And I think Suresh did mention this, you know, the minimum wage workers are paying like 14% of their income just for taxes or something. And, you know, the families who are making, you know, $100,000, $200,000 a year are paying much less of a percentage of their income to taxes when they should be paying more, if not the same thing, you know. I feel like it would take you know, this is a good step, but it's definitely going to take like a lot of legislation changes to really get real change in this. Yes, and it
2: goes back else. to what I was saying about like you really have to change the base idea about we're all in this together, as opposed. To, well, I can afford mm-hmm. it, so and I want to be around nice things, and I can't trust that poor people won't bring down my community, which is a whole other thing. <sighs>
1: good time, <laughs> <Right>. woo!
2: <laughs> America, we're number
0: one. <laughs>
3: And it's sad because so many other places are doing this model. Like, we love to boast and say that we're the top of this and we're the top of that. But there's literally one place that they named in the whole U.S. that's even doing a social housing model at this time. You know, it's working in Europe, it's working in Canada. But, you know, here is in Maryland, one county, Montgomery County in Maryland and out of the whole mm-hmm. um, US. So I hope she did say that in the future, you know, there's more people working on the social housing stuff like Hawaii and California. But I hope that, you know, even more places can do it so we can convince the South to get on it as well. You know, they will be less. <laughs> <I'll> <laughs> cut that out. I'm sorry. <laughs> I also liked how Suresh
2: was Naming names. I was like, yes, he is coming for you all. So watch out.
3: (laughs) Mm -hmm. And we're not, we're not cutting none of them out.
2: When he was like, this person did this, this person did this. And then he's like, but if you want to donate, you should donate. And I was just like, yes, love it.
3: Mm. And they're Seattleites. Like they're some of the richest people on the planet right here.
2: Help. For the sake of your city. Like, for the people who grew up here, for my Seattleites who have grown up here and be like, oh, the Pacific Northwest, Pacific Northwest. And what are you doing to give back? What are you doing?
3: For our call to action, first, go watch our Contextpo live stream on our YouTube platform and come see our next yes, round have, of events. Yes, we have on the live stream,
2: we have the poetry open mic that is live stream, but You can also go check out the art. If you are in the neighborhood, you have another week. Our next call to action, like was said so nicely in the interview, go vote, go vote. Please, please, please go vote. Uh, You can register to vote at vote.gov and then just look up Washington State. But I just wanted to open that up because if you are not in Washington State, then hello, write a review, tell us where you're from. And also you can find out wherever you can vote, at least in the U.S., not 100% that this goes out to all The other countries for vote.gov. Dot, dot but in the US, go check out vote.gov. And if you're like, I'm pretty sure I'm registering, just go check. Yeah, it could never
3: hurt for sure. And our last call to action go volunteer for How's Our Neighbors. Uh, help them canvas and get signatures for Initiative 135. And go to their website, how'sourneighbors.org, to see how else you can get involved and uh, help their organization grow. And get their uh, their mission out there to the community.
2: Yes, and you can see on their website kind of what they're doing. You can read more of those um, stories that they have on their website from people who this initiative has helped, or people who are struggling with houselessness. And yeah, and thank you all. With that, thank you so much for listening. We are looking forward to chatting more with you all next month. Until then, please share this episode with your friends, and let's keep this conversation about housing equality going. Take care, Seattle.
1: And
3: sweet dreams, Seattle.
4: We would like to acknowledge that we are on the traditional land of the first people of Seattle, the Duwamish and Coast Salish people, past and present, and honor with gratitude the land itself and the Duwamish and Coast Salish tribes. This program is supported in part by a grant from the Washington State Arts Commission and the National Endowment of the Arts. If you like what you've heard and would like to support this podcast or other Mirror Stage programming, you can donate at our website, MirrorStage.org, or text PLAYITSMART to 206-888-6477.
2: Thank you, everyone, for listening. This podcast is available on Breaker, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Pocket Casts, Radio Public, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. So if you are finding us on any of those platforms, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe if possible.